now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From class to cults on the cheese in between, the movies are beef. The entertainment is grade A. And I am your host, Mr. Jason Giaconetti. And I'm joined once again by my Mr. Al Giaconetti. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Good. Hey, today we're going back to the late 50s. Uh, our film today is, I wouldn't call it a sequel, but it certainly is a, a, a close second cousin to two movies that were very popular at the, t- the time. Our movie today is called How to Make a Monster. And we'll get to it right after this. Hidden within each of us is a secret desire to destroy. Each of us would like to be able to become the other being, to know the master makeup artist's magic. How to Make a Monster. Broadway stellar performer Robert H. Harris brings to this theater the most terrifying of men, a man whose mind is distorted by hatred. I'll use the very monsters they mock to bring them to an end. This maniacal strength will linger in your arms and hands. And with it, you'll destroy your real enemies. Exactly as I instruct you. autopsy findings, I would say that he was attacked from behind by someone with fiendish strength. So what do we have to do? Look for a monster? We're not talking about actors. We mean a real monster. Behind the scenes in Hollywood's wonderland of make-believe where pretty girls parade their pulchritude, terror stalks with the stealthy steps of death. And death following death permeates the very air you breathe with horror. Mr. Monster Maker of Maveland sells his talents to the devil. I have a great honor to bestow upon you. I intend to add you two to my collection. You want your wall? As real as I can get them. See the Master Monster Maker's Chamber of Horrors in color. How to Make a Monster. How to Make a Monster was released July 1st, 1958 with a 73 minute running time. Your director here is Herbert L. Strock. Now, Herbert Strock uh, is a name you've heard before, um, as he is also the director of I Was a Teenage Frankenstein um, in 57 and then The Crawling Hand in 63. Um, your writer here is uh, Herman Cohen and uh, Aben Candel. Now, Herman Cohen, of course, um, was also the uh, director of um, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, uh, not, the, not director, the writer of I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, and then he was the writer on I Was a Teenage Werewolf as well. And then movies like Conga, Black Zoo, um, The Headless Ghost, stuff like that, Horrors of the Black Museum. 
um, you're producing. Um, Cohen was also your producer, along with uh, James H. Nicholson. Now, James H. Nicholson, of course, um, was one of the co-founders with Samuel Z. Arkoff of AIP Pictures, which makes perfect sense, as this is an AIP picture. Uh, and then your your main stars here are uh, Robert Harris, Gary Conway, re returning to play uh, himself. Uh, Gary play basically Gary in this movie, as he's now the guy who is going to be, um, you know, playing Frankenstein again. Gary Clark uh, taking the role over from Michael Landon because Michael Landon at this point already was now a huge star because right after was there, I want to say so that was in the summer of '57. Right after I was teenage werewolf, he didn't get the job. I like was Bonanza, Bonanza right? He got right. the job immediately. Little Joe, yeah. Um, Gary Clark, um, most people would know he was from the Virginian. Um, you know, kind of thing. And then, uh, he was, uh, you know, again, just another, he's another actor at the same time. When you look at him, they try to get somebody who looked as much like Michael Landon as they could. And he does kind of look like Michael Landon, but not quite the same. Except he's a little bit brawnier. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Michael Landon was very, very skinny. So, yeah. um, and then, uh, excuse me, then you have, um, Morris, um, Ankrum, Paul uh, Bringer, Bringer. Bringer uh, Robert Shea, and uh, John Ashley. Yeah. Um, now, most of these, most of these are faces that uh, everybody mm -hmm. would recognize, but the the names, you know, would be yeah. unless you're really a, a video file of these movies, you're never going to remember the names. But you definitely would recognize all of these faces from just about all of the movies, the sci-fi and horror movies of the of the era. Yeah. Well, they're all they're all uh, key staples. Yeah. yeah, they all work for American International Pictures. Um, and the, your, your estimated budget was about $100,000 for this. Now, um, like my dad said in the open, this is technically the third in the trilogy um, as a follow-up to both I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. Now, what you'll hear Luke and I talk about in February was a movie called Blood of Dracula, which was originally supposed to be called I Was a Teenage Dracula or, a.k.a. I Was a Teenage Vampire or, a.k.a. Blood of Dracula. Um, and when we, Luke and I talk about that movie, you'll understand where that connection comes from, because this movie truly is not like the third in a series. This is a, the direct tie in. So anybody who came to the theater expecting to see the next I Was a Teenage, they got a very different film, which is why some people um, not say forget that this is part of this, but it is looked at as like it's 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 very meta. This is before meta was the thing. But this movie is 100% meta. It's like saying, hey, those other movies you watched, those were movies. Now we're the real thing. It's yeah. very much like the way Scream took the slasher industry and said, hey, th those are movies. Halloween's a movie. Friday the 13th's a movie. But even Wes Craven poking fun at himself. Nightmare on Elm Street's a movie. Scream is real. And to an extent, some of that can be traced back to um, and I don't know how much Wes Craven knew he was even doing this. Um, in The Hills Have Eyes, uh, in Wes Craven has a scene where they go in there and it's a poster of Jaws slashed in half, saying, you're not horror, we're real horror. You know, Hills Have Eyes. So Sam Raimi did that in uh, Evil Dead. He had a poster for Hills Have Eyes slashed in half and said, no, no, you're not horror, we're really horror. And I don't think either Steven Spielberg or... Uh, um, uh, Wes, Wes Craven had any idea that they were part of any of these things except Sam Raimi in his mind and according to uh, Bruce Campbell very much knew they were doing this stuff well, as, we get, as we get on with the, with the, uh, the synopsis here in the story uh, I, I found a, a line in this movie to be uh, so very similar to that and we'll get to it yeah, we'll get yeah. So, and of course this movie was um, it literally, it said, see, you know, see everything. It was all about see this, you know, in color. Even the, even the poster said, in color, right? Yeah. In color. And then you get there, and the movie's black and white. And the last reel is shot in color, which was very, very expensive at the time, especially for a company like AIP, who is working, you know, you know, not on these huge budgets. This was not, so you're saying, but Jay, there are color movies before 1958. Yeah. Yes. But, huge but studio MGM, pictures. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. And this isn't like the way Wizard of Oz was in color, where it purposely was done in black and white, right. and then to go to color, but the screen even gets wider. Like it's different. There's you cannot even compare the budgets on these two kind of films. Yeah, that was a one day budget. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, like literally, they, they spent more on catering uh, than uh, right. than this film cost. Yeah. All right. The, what I, 
Uh, well, you're going to mm -hmm. get to do this, but yep. as the, the as the credits start rolling and the names come up, uh, it was a really nice uh, credit opening. I hadn't seen it in a while, where the uh, the credits are not plastered on the yeah, screen. Yeah, it's written on, drawn. Drawn on, like on a chalkboard. Really yeah, 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 yeah. It looks like he's writing on a board. Yeah, like you would yeah. do at a studio. Right, and, he's, and he and he draws the face of yeah. the of the yeah. Yeah. yeah, really good. So, all right, here we go. So, Peter Drummond, the chief uh, makeup artist for 25 years at American International Studios. Wink, wink. Well, uh, you just but, stole my line. <laughs> what? Well, no, it, American it, International Studios. They're not a. They're not AIP. They're AIS. Yes. No. No. But no. But then the the he says that line. I mean, it, 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 as you get there, um, I said, "Is he supposed to be Jack Pierce?" In my mind, and the next line he says is that I saved the company twenty five years ago. Go, you know, travel back twenty five years from nineteen fifty eight, and you're right in the middle of. Uh, Dracula, you're in the middle of okay. the mummy. Yes, the, yeah. yes. He's supposed to be a tribute to Jack Pierce, yeah. but he's not at Universal Studios. That's what I mean. He's at American, American International, International Studios, Studios, right? Yeah, that, it's a playoff of AIP right. and Universal. Well, was it a homage or a dig? I don't know if it's a dig, Dad. I mean, that's like the, the whole point is that everyone. Okay, so anyone who was a monster kid who read Famous Monsters of Filmland now knew who Jack Pierce was. But let's be honest. Did anyone know who Jack Pierce was in 1933 or 1934? 19 no. He was just a line. He's a line in the movie. You don't yeah. know who he was. It took it took Forrest J. Ackerman and uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland yeah. and those kind of things to really introduce. Take, this is the person who makes these effects. This movie, this movie would not have existed uh, in 1948. Or 1950. You can't make this movie because no one cares. Special who get the guy who does makeup. Who cares, yeah. right? Like that's what the whole thing was. You had to have a time when AIP was still trying to make monster movies when the new kind of movies were coming out, and that's what this whole story is basically about. So um, where am I? Here? So uh, uh, Peter Drummond. Okay, he's the 20. Okay, will be laid off um, after the studio is purchased by NBN Associates, um, which uh, the new the new management from the east. Okay, so let's just stop there. So that's the whole thing, too. Here is a bunch of, they're in California where, you know, you're making these movies and now you have investors from the East coming yep. in and it's NBN, which is a production company, which sounds kind of like MGM right. or also NBC, which was, because remember, television, television. That's one of the lines in here. Well, you'll find, they'll all find work in television because television was supposed to be killing movies. And like, it's so... This movie's so meta without even understanding what probably what meta meant right. at the time. But now when you look at it through there, you're like, oh my God, they predicted so many things here. Uh, so Jeffrey Clayton and John Nixon plan to make musicals and comedies instead of horror movies for which Pete has created his remarkable monster makeups and made the studio famous. Now, the the two guys who come in, again, they're supposed to look, they're young, whatever, but they want to make musicals and they want to make comedies and they want to have pretty faces and half-naked girls and whatever, which literally was the other type of movie playing next door to How to Make a Monster. Yeah, yeah. Is that a double feature? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that happens, is that the first thing that they, um, they tell everybody that they're going to, you know, uh, shut the uh, the productions down of what they're doing, especially the, the horror movies. Yeah. And then you have this little... Three or four minute interlude. Of, oh, that's what I'm getting oh, to, right? Yeah. So the new owner shows Pete one of the new rock musical numbers on stage, which features real life uh, singer singer John Ashley. So when I'm watching this, because Kelly's watching me, she's like, "Really?" And I said, "Well, no, that's John Ashley." She goes, "I don't know who John Ashley." They go, "Right, no one knows who he is because he was he was kind of a star ish, but every single movie was hoping to have the next Elvis Presley show up in their movie." So they would take every one of these movies has, and the same in Blood of Dracula too, which Luke and I talk about in February. They have a young singer, right. and he's he's a, one of the cast, and he just sings their song, and they're hoping because all you need is one song, all you need is one thing to become hot. Well, you this guy for whatever, and then when if you have the next again, I mean, not and James Dean didn't sing, but if you had the next James Dean, right? And he happened to be able to sing as well. Oh my God! Look what we got! Like yeah. you become famous for that, you well, know. Not so much in the singing, but you did have the next James Dean was really Steve McQueen in the Blob, and from there his career took off. Right, but what I'm saying is, but, Steve, yeah. but I'm saying, but they were hoping to get not just the next like iconic young actor, right. but if this guy could sing too, like now it, it just makes everyone money. Yeah, right. I mean, 
But I don't think any any anybody who watched this movie was coming out humming the tune. No, of course not. But but again, th there's more swings and misses than there are hits. Right. I mean, let's face it, Dad. I mean, most agents, you know, they sign people because they think they have the potential to do something. I mean, most agents don't, you know, go and sign somebody and know immediately this person's going to be a huge superstar. Yeah. And some people take a long time to become stars. There are plenty of actors, and we see it, and it's less now. Most people now, they go immediately, they're Roman Candle. They go immediately and they fizzle out. Not many people are in it for the long haul. Yeah. But what happened was they were just trying to hit on something, and yeah. you know. And John Ashley was the one in this movie. Um, in retaliation, Pete vows that to use the very monster that these men reject to destroy them, right? Yeah. And that's where the first, the first 13 minutes of this movie, it's the... The, the not, I don't say the acting, but the storyline is very straightforward, mm -hmm. right? At 13 minutes in, the the, the the makeup artist now it turns into a mad scientist movie, yeah. because he's 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 not and he's it, I tell you the truth, it looks like it looks like a, a hobo cooking soup. Yes, on, yeah. On, on a, on a hot plate. So <laughs> by mixing a numbing ingredient into his foundation cream and persuading the young actors. Uh, that their careers are through unless they place themselves in his power. He hypnotizes both Larry Drake and Tony Mantell. Now, the, they gave them fake names um, because everyone knows it's Gary Conway and not Michael Landon, right. and that's who they're supposed to be. So they give them fake names here because they didn't want anyone to actually... And this is brought up in the movie, right? Well, like, but uh, the, the, the Frankenstein Monsters is a character I play. It's a character I play. They didn't want to call the guy Gary Conway, and that's his real name, and then be like, oh, Gary Conway's a murderer kind of thing. Like, that didn't want to... It, people were not, you know, again, not that people are smart now, but people certainly weren't smart necessarily all the time back then either. Um, who are uh, Larry Drake and Tony Mantell, who are playing the characters, the teenage werewolf and the teenage Frankenstein, respectively, in a picture called Werewolf Meets Frankenstein. Wink, wink. Um, currently shooting on a lot. And there are some people who are very upset that that movie actually was never made. Like, why not bring the teenage yeah. werewolf and the teenage Frankenstein together and let them battle it out? But yeah. those people didn't see either of those movies because they're both dead at the end. So that's right. Yeah. yeah, there is there is no bringing them back. You know what I'm saying? But that's the whole right. thing. Is now they're just guys in masks and teeth and whatever, and then he hypnotizes them, and now they are these things. Yeah. And it's like, and you know, you know that, not how, not how it doesn't works, by the way. Yeah. So but, but, you know, one of the things we always talk about it in, in movies, especially today, the uh, the product placement. There would yeah. be one of the opening scenes, one of the, one of the scenes just before they, 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 the two guys are going to get their makeup on, they're on the on the, the lot. Yep. And the big sign, AI, American International Pictures. Or studios. Or studios. Yes. Right? And so, again, the, the, it looks, I mean, it looks very much like a, a, It probably is the AIP a, thing, and they just take, well, yeah. AIP Pictures, and they just put an S at the end there. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Um, through hypnosis, Peter urges Larry in the teenage werewolf makeup to kill Nixon in the studio projection room. Uh, later, he orders the unknowing Tony in the, in the Frankenstein monster makeup to attack Clayton and choke him to death as he arrived home um, at night in his 1958 Lincoln convertible. Okay, so so they, they're watching the rushes, and then um, what happens then is they obviously... Like the, he's like, oh, put up, put the horror one on, and there's there's yeah. the werewolf drooling like crazy, and that's Kelly said she goes, God, he's drooling a lot. I said you had to see Teenage Werewolf, yeah. and she goes, really? I go, no, no, he drooled a lot in Teenage Werewolf too, um, and he kills him, and of course, like, like oh, it's, he was bitten and whatever, but like he can't he, he can't bite him with those things, but because they they purposely show that before is that he can't even talk with with the teeth out, and the teeth are put in almost like just they just get yeah, over right, the yeah. So he can't bite him. Yeah. So, but, I mean, but, I mean, he probably really choking him more than anything but the, else. But the, but the police say, but the mark, they look, they're fangs. They're fangs, right. Yeah, because yeah. because they got to go with that. And and then, oh, so, uh, so okay. So when Clayton is driving home, he's in his, and they made a big deal about showing you that it's a Lincoln cover. Like, oh. I know, it's, but it's a 58. Yeah. It's just July of 58. Like, this is one of the hot cars. The hot cars. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. But the whole thing is like that it's showing, it's, it's trying to show them how they're, they obviously have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. These are important people. He's I me, mean, look, he's driving a brand new Lincoln, whatever kind of thing. Um, the next day, the studio guy, guard Moynihan, uh, who's is like an amateur detective, stops in the makeup room. He shows yeah. Pete and, R and Rivero, who was Pete's assistant, 
uh, his little black book in which he jots down many interesting facts, such as the late time, 9, 12 p.m., that Pete and Rivero check out on the night of Clayton's murder. He explains he hopes uh, to work his way up to chief security of the lot. Uh, so that scene is, is I mean, it's fine, but like you like this, the, the security guard is oblivious. Like he literally is like, like really? Like, okay. So the guy, okay, the makeup effects guy, um, he's supposed to look like Alfred Hitchcock. Like it's just kind of called a spade. He's supposed to look like Hitchcock, like the way his, his face is enough. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. but what does he really look like? He looks like Paul Heyman nowadays. For those, of you who know, your wrestling reference, Paul Heyman literally looks just like that. Like the Humpty Dumpty yeah. kind of thing. Right. But he's supposed to kind of look like Hitchcock because that's not what Jack, Jack Pierce was a real skinny guy. It's not Paul Blysdale. He was really skinny. Like, these are no, none of the actual makeup effects yeah. guys look like that, well, but but the way he's in his suit, the way he's whatever, they're planning to portray him as being more sophisticated. And Hitchcock always came across that way when you would see him. I don't think I've ever seen Alfred Hitchcock in anything but a suit, um, you know, at least not anything public, so that's right. for public consumption, right? Um, so uh, where are we? Um, so well, he, he gives him, he gives him, he gives enough reason. Right. Okay. So apprehensively, he's not using either the, the, the werewolf. Or yeah. The well, he puts his own makeup on his face. Yeah. Okay. So he makes uh, he makes himself up as a terrifying split face caveman. Right. See, I kind of thought it was more Jekyll, uh, Mister Hyde kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. But now watching it back at, as, as again this time, I'm like, no, that's much more caveman. Um, one of his own creations and kills Moynihan in the studio commissary while Moynihan makes his rounds late at night. Okay. So there's a scene here. Moynihan goes up to the, the, the takes the key and he turns the key in um, the lock. Right. And Kelly goes, what the hell is he unlocking? I go, he's not. It's a time. So right, it's a time, yeah. it's a time thing. You had, you had to make all those times, right? right? Going, yeah. Kelly had never heard of that before. I'm like, Oh no, that's part of the thing. She that, goes, that, that means that you didn't go to sleep on the gym. Right. That's what it was. They yeah. made you go and turn, turn the key at that time. And it lot, it, it punched a time clock that yes, you checked in at that time and you had so many minutes to then make it to the next one. Right. Unless there was an emergency and then you would have to report. Sort of, so if you didn't make your times, that became a problem. It doesn't, you know what? It seems silly now. But like that literally was part of being a security guard in the fifties and sixties and even well, before that. Yeah. Even yeah. Now. Yeah. Even now. Well, no, but I'm saying is, but now it's, it's not a, a physical key. It's a scan of a it's badge. A scan, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but it just was Kelly didn't say, he's like, what is he unlocking? Yeah. I think he's not unlocking anything. If you go back, if, if you, if you can remember going back a little bit, when the producer is killed in the, uh, uh, in the film room, yep. right? The police are in there. He's still slumped over. Yeah, he's yeah. still slumped over the chair, and they're pushing him around and looking at him. And they they walk out, and he's still in the room. Yep. There's no gurney. There's nothing. At least here, I said, I said somebody said, "Hey, we ought to wheel this guy out." Yeah. Because as the police are checking all the details, they got him on a stretcher and they're wheeling him out to, right, the, right. to the ambulance. I, I, I they only must it. have the stretcher one day, Dad. That's what I'm saying. We didn't have it on that day. It's on a different film. I feel, like, I feel like what do you call it? It's like in Reservoir Dogs. You can't be Mister. You can't be Mister Black. That is, that's a guy in a different job and a different thing. Uh, so um, the police investigators. Uh, okay, wait. Sorry, Richard, the older guard, sees and hears nothing as the struggle because he got the radio turned way up. Yeah, but even then, he's still not close to the scene. No, no, right. But yeah. they make it like, well, you had the radio on. And it's like, it's not a crime to have the radio yeah. on. And I'm like, uh, even if you, I mean, he's not anywhere. To ask, see, Kelly said the same thing there. She goes, wait, they're getting out. He wasn't anywhere near him. How was he supposed to hear? Because it, I mean, dishes broke. But you're assuming that it is stone quiet in the middle of LA at night. Right. It's not quiet in LA at night. You're still in the city. Right? It's hard enough. That's why they shot on sound stages. They yeah. had to make things away from things. Um, uh, what is it? Richard, okay. Uh, here's nothing but, but discovers the missing Moynihan's body. He goes to look for him because he didn't check in. The police investigator uncovers two clues. A maid, Millie, describes Frankenstein's monster, Tony in makeup, who struck her as he fled the scene of Clayton's murder. And the police laboratory technician discovers a peculiar ingredient in the makeup left on Clayton's fingernails from his death struggle with Tony. Yeah, now, now the, the, the executive that, that's killed at, at his house. Clayton. Clayton. Yeah. Uh, 
the, 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 the guy who's set up as Frankenstein, first of all, when you watch the movie, and, and, it, it, and uh, even if you had previously seen the, the other one, the makeup for the werewolf is outstanding. The, the makeup for Frankenstein looks like it, it would crumble off his face. Yeah. Now, when the maid gets hit by the Frankenstein, yeah. he's now running back to the, the makeup man's house. Yeah. So or Romero's house. Yeah. Or, yeah. So he's on the street. Yeah. So she was the only, like you said, she was the. Well, but, 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 it's, but it's supposed to be midnight. This is supposed to be really late yeah, at night. Again, he, it's not like, it's not like, you know, the. He could be when when the first murder happened. It was on the lot. He could work his way back to the sure, yeah. to the room. Here he's on the physical street in the middle of, of, yeah. of the town. Yeah, nobody else sees him. Well, it's late at night, Dad, and you know, and and, and he, I'm not here to you know bust somebody out for getting a jog on uh, in their skin tight shirt and pants. Um, so, but that, now what gets me is like the, the formula matches bits found in Pete's old makeup room. Now, not bits found. Let's go there because this. Okay, so. For those of you listeners who may have never met my wife, she doesn't pay a ton of attention during movies, especially if it's not a movie she wants to watch. So she's kind of watching this movie because, you know, whatever. And she's kind of watching and whatever. And because it's, again, the story is interesting. It's not as boring. Oh, no. And there's no blood and gore no. killing and stuff. So she's watching. And he literally is cleaning up. And Kelly goes, wow, they wasted no time packing him up. Right? And then he goes, wow, they wasted no time. She goes, what? And, I said, and yet, and yet when, if, you're, if, you re- if you're really a student watching the movie, he takes a couple of things you know, and he puts it in the garbage bag. But, but, but that's what I'm saying yeah. is, like, but for Kelly to say, wow, they wasted no time packing him up, right? And he literally then says it. She goes, huh. And I'm like, you wonder why I say the things I do. And then what happens? So not just that. Then he goes and he goes, he's got literally the only thing, the, the only, only thing, thing that can incriminate you is the, the, foundation. the foundation. He throws it in the garbage. Not, see, if you had said... There's a fire, and he throws the notes in the fire, and he throws that in the fire and lets it burn, mm. and then they stamp it out. Okay, because maybe you, you had the assumption of destroying of evidence. Did you really think that you're just going to dump this in the... Oh, oh, I'll just throw away the only evidence that can convict me, and whatever. Like, like what? And again, Kelly even said, she goes, why, why would he throw out the only thing that can convict him? Now, in all fairness, uh, Kelly does watch a lot of SVU, and, and yes. like law and order with me. So she's pretty good on like, well, that's evidence you don't need to be there. But like, I feel like there had to be children in the audience yelling at the screen going, don't throw that out. That's the only thing. It literally the only thing. So if there's a weak point in this story, it's him throwing that in the right. now. Yeah. Now, had it been, you know, he's putting whatever away and there's and like it broke on the floor and he's cleaning. Right. See, that would make sense. He broke on the floor and he cleaned it up and threw it out. And there's some left or he cleaned it up and threw it out the window. And there's some left on the floor. That would make sense because the detective work. And I use that, that, that terminology very, very loosely right here was, Hey, look in the garbage. Hey, look what is in here. The clue we need literally like, this is this is how every Perry Mason case breaks, right? Kind of think seriously. It's like right. the one piece of information that you need is magically right there. Um, so anyway, uh, we were like, so uh, yeah. So so the police head for Pete's house. Pete has taken Rivero, Larry, and Tony to his home um, for a grim farewell party. His house being a museum of all the monsters he created for the last twenty five years for the studio. Let's stop there. So. Whose heads and masks are those on the wall? Do you know? Oh, they're all. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're not. They're not uh, Jack Pierce. No. They're Blaisdells. Blaisdells. They're yeah. his actual things they owned. Yeah. And he had said, "I I would like to give some of these back." And AIP said, "We own them, so you can't have them." So, which has led to a lot of hurt feelings and whatever. So now they're in this room. Now there are a couple that were created, and you can tell the ones that look like garbage were created literally mm-hmm. just for this scene. But then the other ones. Are um, it the terror from beyond space? Mm-hmm. Not, it's not terror. Excuse me. It conquered the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's the the she creature. It's every famous thing that Blaisdell ever did is on display cool. here, right? And this is where things start going. To, where everything moves to color. Oh yeah, well, we right. Have to, we have to back up a little bit here. Why? No, because I, no, there's I'm nothing not, else there. No, 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 no. There, there are some things. Um, One, the, the the there is a newspaper that has headlines that killer on the loose, right? Watch that scene closely. 
the front page has got all of the yeah. information. As he turns the pages, they are blank. <laughs> the newspaper is blank. And you would think that, okay, if the newspaper is blank, don't somehow show it to the camera because it's there. It's only on for a couple of seconds, but you can see that there's nothing on page two or three. And you would think they might just get an actual newspaper that might have been laying around exactly. and put a fake page on the front. No, the other thing is something that would that I, I'm, I'm sure does not happen today, or maybe even 20 years ago, uh, that would have, that happened then. The police start badgering the 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 oh, yeah. assistant to the point of almost, you know, hey, let's waterboard him because he's not he hasn't given yeah. us the, the right answers. That that went a little too far. But the guy who's the assistant. That's in a lot of movies. He's the wimpy guy, and he plays this part really well yeah. as the wimpy guy. Right. So yeah, I just or we would call him the wormy guy. Yeah, he is the wormy guy. But so uh, Pete, uh, to the back of the not the house. Pete, distrusting Rivero, stabs him to death when he when they are alone in the kitchen. Uh, learning that Larry and Tony are then trying to leave the locked room, he attacks both of them with the knife. Uh, Larry, Larry awkwardly knocks over a candelabra, setting the museum on fire, the monster museum on fire, and Peter is burned to death, trying in vain to save the heads of the monstrous children mounted on the wall. The police break through the locked door just before the flames reach the boys, and they save Larry and Tony. Now, Paul Blaisdell asked profusely, please do not burn my actual things. And they did, and he said, look, he goes, fine, you own all He goes, I just want this one head, the... It's not. It's not Beulah, and it's not. Um, it's not the she creature. It's it's this cat creature, whatever. That literally we don't ever see get burned yeah. because they didn't film it. It literally went up in flames. And they didn't even bother filming it, so they destroyed all his work without actually filming all of it, which led him to even be more enraged, and it led to the literal years of uh, resentment stuff. Yeah. Oh my god, it was crazy. So. Um, Paul Blaisdell for, uh, okay, so, okay, okay, included the Cat Girl from 1960-56, Beulah from A Conquer the World 56, Invasion of Saucerman 57, the Dr. Jekyll Mask from Attack of the Puppa People in 58. Um, he also created an Aunt Elsmeralda mask um, to be burned, uh, especially to be burned in that scene, designed to have the face actually melt. Um, you know, all this stuff was in his book. Yeah, I mean, um, that's the, the he, he, Okay, so he specifically asked AP not to burn his cat girl mask, but it was carelessly destroyed in the fire anyway. And to compound the tragedy, the cameraman failed to film the mask being burned. The whole thing left a bad taste in Blaisdell's mouth and yada, yada, yada. It's a great ending because when it goes, oh, yeah. when it goes to color, the only the thing is when, the, uh, when, 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 the, when the, the two Garys show up at the house, the room is lit, or the house is lit with candles. Yeah, lots of candles. Lots of candles. And they're all on. Yeah, they're all lit. They're all We're lit, good. Right? And so you say to yourself, okay, this has got to end in a fire because yeah. there's no way. That, and then, but the, the and a lot of these pictures ends really quickly as the fire is raging and it's, and it's all burning. Every, and everybody's like, the police show up, bing, the end, and it comes on. And so, you know, for another couple of minutes, you could have had maybe a, just a couple of more. Nope. Whatever. But nope. Then, Light it and get away, Dad. That's, yeah. Well, we, look, we got to get this thing in. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the folks. So, as we said, this is. But it's pretty good. It, no, mean, it's not. It's not that, that's what I'm saying. But this, if you went to this movie expecting to see the next, I was a teenage whatever, you didn't get that. Right. When you went to see Blood of Dracula, you got I was a teenage vampire, I was a teenage Dracula, whatever you want to call it. That movie formulaically is identical to the other two movies, right? And literally, so when you say those are the real trilogy and people are, you right. know, whatever, this feels like this is the fourth movie of those three. Now, at no point is there a female vampire mask, makeup, anything in there. Had there been that, that would have actually been like the kind of like the cherry on the top of the thing. Because what happens then is you would say, oh, clearly that's the trilogy and this is now the story behind it and whatever. It's just weird that this is the end of the trilogy, but it's not really a trilogy, it's a trilogy right? But it's, but, it, but it's always billed as that way. Yeah. And, and, and as you go through the movie, I guess about maybe a third of the way in, um, the, the makeup artist is standing in front of the two, you know, the two 
uh, huge posters. posters. The oh. little, but those are the actual posters. Yes. Yeah. And, so, and they just took Michael Landon's name. Or, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, just took his name off it. Right. That's all it is. But those are the those are the iconic posters of the the face with the fried egg eye and the claws, which every single person in that theater had probably seen. Right. You know, the the, ones, yeah. half a year before. Well, again, those, or a year before. Those two movies. In hindsight, for the well, Teenage pro- Werewolf was a huge yeah. success, right. and they they rushed the other movies into production yeah. because that's what they did. They rushed Blood for Dra- Blood of Dracula, um, not Blood for Dracula. That's a very different movie. Blood of Dracula and and Teenage Frankenstein were rushed in production. They had to get these things done. This came out almost a year later, yeah. so this was much after all those things hit. And they did whatever, and I guess they were trying to see if do we have another like do I have another Surprise, teenage yeah. fr- teenage werewolf. Because I was a teenage werewolf was insane. That movie like did crazy business for a movie that literally was supposed to be just, yeah. you know, or yeah. whatever. They think about this. The, the only other werewolf movie in the early 50s was a movie called The Werewolf. Yeah. Well, that's what we had talked right. about during the episode right. is that, yeah, there was not many werewolf movies that werewolves had kind of fallen out of favor. Right. The, the, the werewolf movie people remembered, of course, obviously The Wolfman. But the last time anyone had seen a the Wolfman yeah, was Abbott and Costello me right. Frankenstein be, because that's even after um, House of Dracula, House right. of Frankenstein, right. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah. yeah, and so people had seen it there, and the Wolfman had was still a very popular costume. Now you're saying, but Jay didn't Lon Chaney play the Wolfman on like Route 66 and things like that? Yeah, yes, right. but that wasn't 1958. That became after when 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 so when 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 the uh, um, the, when sh- the shock package was sold through to television and the son of shock, which featured all those universal movies and they were then being played every Saturday night, whatever it gave universal monsters a second life. And it main meant that movies, companies like AIP and companies like, uh, you know, like, like well, Roger Corman's part of all this stuff too, right? They could make these kind of movies on the cheap, get them out. And monster kids were a thing like monster kids were huge and their money again, you know, you you make two kinds. There's two kinds of movies. You make movies to win awards. You make money to make make movies to make money. And these movies were not made to win awards. They were made to make money. Yeah. And they made their money. But some movies, Change Werewolf is the perfect example. Made its money and then made more money and made more money. Like, oh man, this worked. And you know why? I mean, when you, it's, a lot of this is not is not just happenstance. When the war ended in 1945, there was this huge boom. All these soldiers coming back home. The the next Three to five years, there was a huge number of, of childbirths. Yeah. And so just segue now to the 19, late, mid, mid to late 1950s, and you've got 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, yeah. you know, in in what was the Eisenhower era in the United States, which was, yeah, there was the Korean War, but there were, it, it, it was yeah. a very, very... It was a, it was a, a leave-it-to-beaver society. Yes. yeah. And, Everybody was was getting wealthy. The uh, cars were were selling like crazy, and so there was. There, I don't know if there was if you could call it a lot of disposable income, but movie theaters popped up, and now you had these ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen year olds. What are you going to do with it? So her? the difference though is too, and some people have a hard time remembering the difference between it. People think they well, it's just it's the sixties. We're not even in the sixties no, yet. No, it's not the sixties, right? And the sixties that they're thinking of. It's not 1960, 61. No, it's, it's the, that, that's the late 60s, yeah, late 60s, right? That's when change is happening. That's when things started changing. And that leads us into the 70s and the nihilism of the 70s and mm-hmm. all the other stuff. And that leads us into the, you know, the 80s, which is, you know, do a line of Coke and vote for Reagan kind of thing. Like all that stuff had to occur because things had to change. But when you look at the way the, and, and you can see it in the movies of the time, like people are always like, oh, well, the giant bug movies, just I'm like, it's reaction to the nuclear fallout, right? Because we, we, th- there was a bomb dropped on a country that killed millions of people. Like, you know, this is what we're saying. Like, it's, you can see it in the cinema of the time. Now, it's not always immediate, but you start to see it. The, the, the distrust of government, the distrust of all those things in the late 60s, those are the, those are the little kids who are seeing these movies in the 50s, and then they're getting kind of like, okay, well, it's not working out for me the way it should work out, and that's when rebellion happens. Yeah. But that's what, but people don't remember that because they conflate all those things to be the exact same thing. Yeah. The 50s was not just 50, 51, 52, and then all of a sudden it changed. The 50s themselves, the early 50s was a lot like the late 40s with post-war, what you saw in your theater, what you saw on the screen. 
different kinds of movies, the, 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 uh, you know, the giant bug movement and all the different things and, and the loss of self. That's why movies like, like the incredible shrinking man were like people like, well, it's a sci-fi movie. And like, except when you watch it, it's not, it's about, you know, the loss of identity and all this stuff, which many people were dealing with. You had people in a post-war America, you know, coming home from war. And, and we talk about this. In World War One, a lot of those people died, and they, they, they would, but they would die from those wounds. Medicine advanced so much after World War Two, they didn't die; they came home. So you had people who were disfigured. You had people who were, you know, who may have passed away in some, you know, godforsaken field tent somewhere, made it back, and now those people who are doing that that changes the culture of the country because the and 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 it's you know, not to get like political, but the idea is like that changed how people looked at things. Now, if you went off to war and you're like, well, you know, this guy was shot. Well, then, okay, maybe he survived. Now there's a much better chance they survived. Yeah. And what happened was even going back, even to world war one, we saw that come out in, 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 um, Cheney's, uh, um, fan of the opera, right? We see Cheney's fan of the opera. What happens? He's, he's portraying the phantom, as someone who's been poisoned with mustard gas. And like, that was a real thing. Like you had to worry about that. And he's wearing prosthetics and stuff. There were no prosthetics. If you fought in a war prior to world war one, you didn't come home. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, well, people that, did obviously, but like, you know what I'm saying? There's great chance you yeah. never did. Yeah. Even though there was, there was that the, the smaller war, the Korean war. If you were, uh, if you were, a, a, a an army guy or a Navy guy or what have you, you were still honored or, yeah, or yeah. and then it, 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 when, when Vietnam started wow. now, it, the, the, the whole, the whole culture of the country changed. Yeah. And that's where now, when, when you come home, came home from the, from Vietnam or you came home from the war and you wore a uniform on the street, people would spit at you, curse at you, you know, you know, you're killing babies. Yeah. And so again, each era or each decade had its own, yeah, uh, but I'm saying, but it's not like in 1959 at midnight, midnight on there, no, it ended right. and the 60s began. No. You had to bleed that in. Yeah. And then the 60s, the change in the 60s, that, you know, the free love and all the other stuff, that, that, hadn't that hadn't happened until the late 60s. Late and that 60s. bled into the early part of the 70s. But that culture, again, we see it. It's a perfect example of this. And, and, and I know it's not the movie we're talking about. But when you watch First Blood, right? And and what happens? What is what does John Rambo say? He goes, "I came home and you hated. Like I did yeah. everything for you." And what happens? You know, like you look at that, and you know, people say, "Well, no, Rambo's not like that. Rambo's like." And they're what they talk about? Talk about part two. They're talking about Rambo, First Blood, Part Two. And I'm like, go back and watch First Blood. Watch a movie about somebody who is being you know treated that way. And again, I know this is not the film we're talking about, but you can see it there. Go back and watch Full Metal Jacket. Go back and watch, I mean, uh, yeah. not not so much Platoon, because Platoon is in the 80s and it's a little different, but like Full Metal Jackson, for example, Apocalypse Now, like all those movies made at that time, when when Vietnam was still raw, it was still right there. Yeah. Like it wasn't, like it wasn't, you know, it's not like making a movie nowadays about Vietnam. We're like 50 years, 60 years mm. removed from it, yeah. right? Making a movie when people were there. Savini talks about this constantly. What made him the best special effects artist? And and some of you may not like Tom Savini personally, but literally what made his effects great? He goes, he was a field he photographer and took pictures of dead bodies. And you're like, that's disgusting. And like, whether it's gross or not, I literally just watched the documentary the, the, that just yeah. came out, right? It, it's, it's, mor it's morbid. It's morbid. It's not pleasant to think about these things. But he talks about looking at composition, looking at this stuff, and as an artist... Because he's like, I don't want to be here in this war. He didn't want to be in the war, but he had to find a way to rationalize it to himself. But that's the reality of it. We didn't see, just think about the difference in the coverage on television from like, I mean, World War One. there was no television. It was, you saw it in the theater and they, but it was all the propaganda they want to show you. In World War Two, there's a lot more, pro there was propaganda being shown, but you were seeing more. The Korean War. You saw more by Vietnam. It was, it was in your living night. room every night, every single Walter, night. Walter Cronkite was telling you just how many yeah. soldiers had died. Right. Yeah. So that changes. Yeah. That changes things. So when we look at something from the fifties, and this is fifty-eight, and this is again late fifties, 
you start to see the change and it's not drastic here because we still had a number of years until things really changed. Yeah. But even the, even the, what the movie's being made at the time were changing. People think about like, think, but just, I'm saying just horror in general. The people think, well, Night of the Living Dead was made forever ago, 1968. Yeah. Yes, it's a very long time ago. It's 10 years after this. This movie came out 10 years before Night of the Living Dead. And Night of the Living Dead was, I mean, he just, Romero and, 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 um, um, uh, I forgot the other guy's name. Uh, like they, they managed to hit. They they hit perfectly because that movie to this day still holds up. It's still hor- It's still horrifying to watch mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Why? Because it just happened to work. What if it didn't? What if they didn't make it? What if it whatever? Something else would have come in and taken its place. But the idea is that like it took ten years from this, yeah. so there were still giant bug movies to come. Still whatever yeah. movie. You know, whatever. You know, the, the- the, t- the time frame that we're talking about here is that I was in grammar school. In 1959, the, um, there was a movie that came out called On the Beach. Mm-hmm. And it was about That's, the end of the world, yeah. nuclear war. And uh, actually, the, there was a book yeah. that was written in 1957 yep. by Neville Shute called On the Beach. Yep. And when I, got into, when I when it got into high school, I had, you had to read, read six it. books yeah. over the summer. Mm-hmm. Not read that particular book. But you go into the bookstore, and if you were if you were someone like me, you looked for the shortest books that you had to read, including the Pearl. Uh, and so this book, this book on the cover, it's got a U.S. submarine. And again, it was it was the I don't mm-hmm. was, it wasn't the movie version. It was by Neville Shaw. No, yeah. The first line of that movie, and this is 1957, is is the first bomb was dropped on on Tel Aviv. And again, so now you read the book, and there's yeah. the most of the book is about the uh, the the, uh, the 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 leftover. I don't say the leftover, but the only places on Earth that were safe, which was Australia. And as the the uh, the fallout mm-hmm. kept cre- creeping closer and closer, and I mean the story gets. If you ever see the if you can see the movie, watch it. It's great. But again, I am now seventh grade. You know, I'm going to go into high school. I get into high school, and. My my, it still is 1962 to 1966. For the first two or three years, the biggest thing was, are we, you know, are we playing football today? Uh, what's on? What's the movies? We were still going out, right? By the time I got into college, the Vietnam War had just started, yeah. And the buildup, again, this is by with Johnson. The buildup had started. By the time I was a junior in college, we all had numbers hanging from our neck based on our birthday, yeah. because that was when we were going to get drafted. So your mindset went from the bucolic time of the 50s to the, I'm a teenager, can I get a date, you know, and all that. And now, am I going to die in the next five yeah. years? Right, okay. exactly. And that's exactly what yeah. the movie industry did. Yeah, and the thing is, and so we start seeing that. Again, we see that in the films, and those people who are truly historians and go back and look at those kind of things. And we've talked about all different kinds. We cover all different movies from all different time frames yeah. here. And we see the, the influences. You can see this stuff when you look at the stuff from the eighties to even now and like whatever we go always, I mean, even going back into the thirties with some of the movies we talk about, it's a very different world. So, um, but yeah, folks, so how to make a monster. If you are interested, if you've never seen this, um, it's on the Blu-ray is pristine. Yeah. Um, it's actually on YouTube. Um, I think someone took, I want to say, it looks like the Blu-ray, someone ripped the Blu-ray and put it up, um, but I'm betting it probably is not the exact Blu-ray. It's probably the cleaned up version. It's available out there. Um, well worth your time seeing if you've never seen it. Yeah. Um, it's, if you're expecting to see the next uh, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, you're not going to get that. You're going to get a movie that's much more meta, much more on point, but it's actually probably more intelligent right. than okay. most of yeah. the movies you're going to see yeah. coming out of AIP. Well, again, this one here I thought was Again, was was, I was it's, really it's not really a monster movie. I was really surprised yeah. at how, at how literate the, 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 yeah. the, the story was. Right. And it, other than the fact that he's cooking this this uh, this yeah. hypnotic serum, uh, the movie could be any kind of murder mystery. Yeah. Right. So, all right, folks. So uh, again, this is again we're just kicking off 2023 here. Um, obviously, we got this. Now we're gonna have our um, another episode this month. Um, where dad and I are going to look at all the, cover all the feedback we have. We have a bunch of oh. feedback here. We don't want to make the episodes way too long. Uh, but then Luke and I will be talking about blood of Dracula, um, for our February, ed, um, episode. And then we'll get into our seventh anniversary and all this other stuff we've got coming up this year. So please be on the lookout for those. 
Um, as always, folks, we appreciate um, all the feedback. Uh, you know, did you see this movie in the theater? Do you have memories of this? Um, do you remember reading Famous Monsters of Filmland, where I guarantee you this was plastered all over the place? Yeah. Um, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, as we say, um, you know, we we do this because we love the, uh, talking about movies and different things. Um, and we love hearing from you guys too. So if you have any of that stuff, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot it on into the show. We'll, we'll read it all on the air. Um, I think we're good to go with this next time. Like I said, next to me here, dad. Now we're going to talk about some of the feedback we've received on some of the movies we've covered the back, the tail end of 2022. Um, so I want to thank everyone for all the downloads and the listens and all the shares. Um, you help, you are helping to grow, um, this show every time you do something like that. So like we say around here, folks, Keep those cards and letters coming, and keep watching the skies. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. This has been an episode of Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. If you'd like to contact me, please email the show at botsbugsbabes at gmail.com. If you'd like to find me online, I'm on Facebook under my name, Jason Jacknetti. I often contribute to the Two True Freaks Facebook group. You can visit my Facebook page, The Art of Horror Collective, and you can search the hashtag, The Art of Horror Collective. On Instagram... Find me under my name, Jason Jacknetti, and search the hashtag, The Art of Horror Collective, as well as the new hashtag, Bots, Bugs, Babes Podcast. I'm the only one using them. I'm also on Twitter, at Jason Jacknetti, and you can visit my webpage at www.theartofhorrorcollective.wordpress.com. All movies, characters, stories, music, etc. are properties of their respective holders. This is a fan work, and any use of any property is purely for review, discussion, entertainment. So don't sue me. I ain't got anything anyway. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Will you stop?